This is episode 51 of the Untangled Faith podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by author, podcaster, and acquisitions editor, Caitlin Beatty. When a, when a specific celebrity figure is over time seen to be ordained or, or anointed and like their position is really wrapped up with God's providence and God's plan, it's just, it's like the ego of leaders projected onto God. <laughs> like, you know, it's good for all of us to remember God does not need us in the spotlight with a platform in order to do God's work in the world. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. The Untangled Faith Podcast is brought to you by my listeners who support me on Patreon. This episode is also sponsored by Faithful Counseling. Earlier this year, after putting it off for far too long, I started seeing a counselor, and it's made a huge difference for me. Faithful Counseling is a Christian counseling service with thousands of licensed therapists across all 50 states with access by video or phone sessions or chat or text. There are therapists with expertise in trauma, depression, family conflicts, and more. You can ask for a new counselor at any time, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Untangled Faith podcast listeners get 10% off their first month from our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Go to faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled. Fill out a questionnaire and you'll be matched with a counselor. That's faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled. Last spring, when I saw that Caitlin Beatty was working on a book with the title Celebrities for Jesus, I knew I was going to have to read it and interview her. So I grabbed a pre-release copy on NetGalley and asked to schedule a time to chat. Caitlin and I had a great conversation, and she did the thing that podcasters do. She asked me a few questions. Here's Caitlin Beatty. It's a fun excuse to have lots of uh, conversations with interesting people. And mm. I mean, you get to do this as a journalist, but there's something um, there's something fun about podcasts. People are really enjoying the audio format of things, and it's sort of a mm-hmm. whole new world for uh, people that... Uh, have not paid attention to certain things. They're paying attention mm-hmm. uh, in the audio world. That is a whole, mm-hmm. a whole new thing. So, I am very excited about your new book coming out. It comes out Thank in you. August. Is that right? Yes, August sixteenth. Yes. So, yeah. like a month. Celebrities from now. for Jesus: How personas, platforms, and profits are hurting the church. That's a big, huge thing. Now, I've seen a little bit of ribbing online with you <laughs> about endorsements. Oh, sure. (laughs) From celebrity Christians and endorsers. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. Because I would imagine, like, what is it like to wrestle with the idea and really look at the idea of how celebrity can be problematic Mm -hmm. and also try to use it in a healthy way? Mm -hmm. What is that Mm -hmm. like for you? There is a weird tension. And I feel like it's better just to acknowledge it up front, which is that to if you have a message that you're trying to share with people in book format, you know, part of the publishing game is that celebrity sells, you know, endorsements, people having you on their podcast, (laughs) you know, publishers are looking for 
a sense of platform. And so there is there is definitely a strong critique in the book of how people have misused their platforms. But I think for anybody with a platform, the key is to figure out, like, am I building this because I have a message to share from the platform that I think yes. will edify the church and my listeners? Or is this more about building a platform so that I can get up there and feel good about myself and feed my ego and make a lot of money. Like, you know, obviously a lot of this comes down to motive and, you know, I don't feel comfortable saying, well, if you're, if you're famous, you have bad motives. Like people are famous and well-known for lots of good reasons. Right. It's just a matter of, I think for ourselves discerning, what am I in this for? And am I, writing and speaking in order to try to edify and help other people or am I in it for something else so So but yes there's there's definitely a tension there and I I expected that like from the beginning you know I was like yeah this is just going to be part of the conversation yeah and well so you get to work through some of the things that you so you're living through some of the things that you sort of write about when it comes to putting work out into the world. Do you think it gives you a little bit more empathy for people that are trying to like balance that, that tension? Yeah. The, the work of a communicator, if you, if you either feel called to or are gifted to communicate, whether in writing or speaking, obviously that the work of communication implies an audience. Yes. (laughs) You want people to engage your ideas, your work, And so just with that is the inherent tension of how am I attracting an audience? Am I doing it in a way that has integrity? Um, How do I navigate having the spotlight on me? Do I let that go to my head? Do I surround myself in my daily life with people who know me far beyond the spotlight? Like at the end of the day, from a spiritual perspective, where do I derive my value? Um, so yeah, I, I feel those tensions as someone who is, you know, a journalist critiquing the excesses of celebrity in the church, but also as someone who works in book publishing and yeah. is in lots of conversations about the platform game. And then also a writer and communicator who feels like she has a message to share with other people. I feel like I'm kind of at the nexus in some ways of the conversation and have to you know, as a journalist, I have a little, I can claim a little bit of objectivity. Like these are things I'm just observing. But then as soon as you put a book out and it has your name on it, you're also swimming in the waters yes. of celebrity. So yeah, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> I think it's a good sign that you feel the tension. I think it's a sign of health that you, you notice it. Uh, I, I think if you didn't, it would be a sign of maybe not being fully aware of Mm-hmm. what possibly could go wrong. So when you mm-hmm. are looking at endorsers mm-hmm. and you're also thinking about the problem of celebrity, how did you decide who to reach out to? Or maybe you worked with mm. uh, a, a publicist or somebody, an editor, like what made you, how did you come up with some names of people to reach out to? So we actually, the the list of endorsers was something that the Brazos Press marketing team and I kind of came up with. Sure. And I think there's probably a separate conversation to be had about what endorsements are for and do people even care? It's something that if you're inside the industry, you pay attention to, but I don't know if that many people care, but it's part of what trade publishing 
entails is getting endorsements. But one thing that didn't come through in that tweet that I got pushed back on is that we asked people who do not have any platform to read and engage the book, as well as people who are more household names, kind of as a way to say that the opinions and perspectives of people who have no fame attached to their name are as valuable as people who have fame attached to their name. And in fact, (laughs) uh, I kind of trust people who don't have a kind of brand uh, affiliated with their name to actually read the book <laughs> yes, and, and engage it because, and I don't think that anybody who endorsed my book, who, you know, has name recognition, I think they all actually read the book. Yes. But sometimes what happens in book publishing, you realize that, you know, if someone is essentially a celebrity, well, they don't have time to read a book, but they still want their name to appear on it. So they'll have an assistant read it and like write something up. And then the celebrity person will like sign off on it. Or sometimes like the marketing team will write (laughs) like a generic endorsement and send it to the celebrity and say, so you might say something like this, right? (laughs) So yeah, like I'm making it easy for you. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And I just think for Christian book buyers and readers, it's important to understand some of these practices that are common within Christian book publishing, just just to be aware that not everything that is presented is always as it appears. Yes. <laughs> and that's true in any book publishing business, but you know, Christian publishers are taking their cues from mainstream publishers. And I think for industry insiders, we have to ask what is acceptable and what crosses an ethical line or what what does managing the celebrity equation with integrity look like? So Yeah. Oh, and here's what I appreciated about your endorsers. One of them that was on the the book itself that I, I looked at, um, it was just Joe Blow, person. I'm just a person, and, and the and the names that I recognized were people that were not they they aren't recognizable just because they're famous, but because of work that they have they mm-hmm. have contributed, like mm-hmm. Karen Swallow Pryor and others. It has to do with the work that they've done. I, I appreciate yes. that. I think it does add some credibility because. Because you do know some of that endorsement has to do with some people like me that say, oh, I trust that person. Mm-hmm. You know, if people are really busy, I I look at the words more than some people do when it comes to endorsements. And some people, they're endorsing the person. They're endorsing their friend. And you can mm. see that they're like, you know, and I, I know Joe and I know that anything he does is amazing. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's sort of how some of them are getting around that. But um, mm. I just wanted to say I did, I did feel like the the names there, it sends a message. Um, mm. They they weren't necessarily the flashiest, and they don't all they didn't all land in the same place demographically either, which I think mm-hmm. is a really really important conversation to have. Mm-hmm. Um, so your work, you've worked as a religion journalist for a long time. Um, you've seen a lot of things, um, how <laughs> yes. good and yes, bad, uh-huh. <laughs> um, you have the files of things that you're like, uh, this may be problematic, but not yet. <laughs> this is mm. the yellow flag file. We just don't mm-hmm. know for sure. Mm-hmm. And then you've seen things play out in a way that's really, really difficult. 
And that has obviously impacted, as I read your book, impacted your work. What has that been like for you as you have watched that? As somebody Hmm. who considers yourself a person of faith Mm -hmm. um, and just processing all of that, like how has that impacted your faith and how you you report on things and who you... uh, who you focus a spotlight on and who you don't talk mm-hmm. to you about that mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> Any journalists and maybe especially religion journalists who are Christians as well would tell you that a casualty of the work is cynicism because yeah. you, you know, most news that is reported and that journalists have to report on is bad news in some capacity Like when things go well and when leaders act as if they should, we don't hear about it most of the time because (laughs) most news is like, this is how things went wrong. This is how somebody failed. When I worked at Christianity Today, you know, we, over the time that I was there, we received several tips about various leaders, you know, household names um, who were facing allegations, you know, at that time kind of off the record about impropriety or moral failure or forms of abuse. I didn't, I never have felt like because these beloved Christian leaders are apparently not who they present themselves to be, I'm losing my faith. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's because I never have really felt overly attached to like one specific celebrity figure or I've never been in institutions that kind of revolved around that kind of leader or figure. So I'm able, even just from a theological perspective, to say the world is broken and fallen. And there are a lot of really unhealthy people in church leadership. And just because you're in church leadership does not mean that like you're perfect or you are above reproach. Or that God is uniquely blessing you or calling you. Like, I think having a really grounded theological view of the human capacity to sin and to self-deceive is is important in all of this. And just also, I think, being wise and having your eyes open to the ways that power works within organizations and institutions and among leaders in general. I think that's kind of a growth edge for a lot of Christians in the American church, acknowledging and understanding the uses and abuses of power, especially power that's more social and relational and how somebody can with their charisma or the force of their personality actually become coercive and abusive toward other people. I didn't really, I wasn't really given a theology of power growing up, but that's something that I have felt like it was important to develop over the last several years, thinking about these cases of, you know, individual celebrity Christians and the ways that they've fallen. It's not just a story about individuals. It's also about systems and organizations Mm -hmm. that are built up around their persona and the people around them who allow them to abuse and kind of look the other way and fail to offer accountability. So I I hope that the book is at least offering a primer 
on kind of a basic theology of power and how it connects to celebrity. But I, I am still a Christian. I am definitely, I definitely veer a little cynical and I have to check that. Yeah. But I also have seen a lot and heard a lot. Maybe that cynicism in like framed positively is discernment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just being realistic and honest about the propensity for people to sin and then deceive themselves about that sin. Yeah. Boz Chavijan said, you know, obviously he deals with cynicism, but he says in some ways it's good for his work, but that he has other things that he looks at too that that ground mm-hmm. him. He's talking about like systemic issues reminds me. Um, Chuck DeGroote said, everybody like writing and working in the space is saying Dr. Diane Langberg's words, like just after she has been, and she's been, she's been talking for a long time about systemic narcissism. And I'm really excited about the fact that there are more people having this conversation. Mm But for some reason, I think our Christian organizations are particularly susceptible to the idea that we are special, like our organizations mm-hmm. and our people, when, when somebody thinks and, and talks like they are anointed and chosen for a certain work, mm-hmm. it can lead to not holding people accountable mm-hmm. or thinking that they need, we need to protect that at all costs. When mm-hmm. that protection then ends up not so much protecting the gospel, we, we try to say it is, right? But it really right. is protecting an individual. And one thing that you said that, that stood out to me, and I think probably helps with fighting for healthy leaders and healthy people that are like sort of the, the more high profile people, is you talked about proximity. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear you explain a little bit about how proximity Mm-hmm. When it comes to, I mean, you mentioned in, in the first chapter, I think social power and proximity. How is proximity sort of an an antidote to mm-hmm. some of those uh, those like fallen off the rails sort of problems? It's hard to define celebrity in some ways and yes. distinguish it from fame, but the definition that really coalesced for me was social power without proximity. So having the ability to shape and influence many more people who feel like they know you than you could ever know and using the tools of mass media to kind of disseminate ideas and views and your own image. But then without the attendant flesh and blood behind closed doors, out of the spotlight relationships that keep any that all of us need in order to stay grounded in the truth of who we are, both as people who are beloved by God and accepted fully and embraced yes. fully, and also have blind spot, blind spots and yeah. flaws and areas of growth, you know, growth opportunities. Yes. And none of us can become the people that God desires for us to be in terms of people of wholeheartedness and integrity without the kind of deep proximate relationship where the people in our lives love us are sometimes able to say the hard thing out of love and value us regardless of how we perform in the spotlight. And I think what can happen with a lot of celebrity figures, and this is 
you know, I think this is a temptation for anybody with a platform is that it's, it's easier to want the adoration of the fans yeah. <laughs> than the honest truth of the in-person deep relationships, you know? Yes. So if I have had a difficult conversation with a close friend and she's been critical of me or she's like called me out on something and I don't like that because I have an ego like all of us and I don't want to you know I'm I'm hurt or I'm angry or something well how good does it feel to go to social media and see people engaging in a way that reminds me like oh I'm I'm funny I'm you know I'm smart whatever like whatever projection of the self that I find palatable and needed at that time in order to protect my ego. Um, The other thing that can happen, of course, is that if you're in a position of leadership in an organization and you have a fragile ego and narcissistic tendencies, and we can talk about that, (laughs) um, you tend to surround yourself with people who are only going to tell you the thing that you want to hear, the things that you want to hear people who adore you, who look up to you, who consider you a mentor or a spiritual hero, who are like you, who are like similar to you, who will affirm your vision for the organization. And so when we talk about accountability and that's, you know, when it's working well, I would think of accountability as another form of proximity. But a lot of what passes for accountability in organizations is essentially like a gathering of yes men. Mm, And I think in a lot of senses, it is mostly men. (laughs) Although, of course, women can do it too. But um, it gives the appearance of accountability. But in fact, the charismatic leader has surrounded themselves with people who are never really going to stand up to them, who are just going to reflect back what they want to hear and believe about themselves. Yeah. So there's going to need to be some sort of intentional work of on the part of the person, the individual mm-hmm. to want to be healthy and to, I mean, nobody wants someone to say something that's going to hurt them. They're going to need to desire that healthy experience and being, you know, faithful with their platform in a way that isn't self-serving more than they want, that they, than they desire that comfort. And that's, that's really mm-hmm. hard. I mean, it requires, mm-hmm not just a one-time, hey guys, I want you to hold me Mm -hmm. accountable and then never check back again and say, oh, I actually really mean that. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And our relationship or whatever isn't dependent on you saying, you know, the happy, positive things. Mm -hmm. It's a hard, hard thing. Yeah. And I I would think that for Christian organizations who are hiring and thinking about leadership, trying as best as you can to work with people and put people in positions of power who want to steward it well, who understand going in, there are going to be temptations to the kind of power that I am given that I have to honestly examine. And I'm not going to be able to see all of the temptations and dynamics. And so that's all the more why I need people who are going to speak the truth in love. And if you have leaders coming in who it's almost like you shouldn't want to be famous in order yes. to be famous in a healthy way. Yeah. Like if you sense that someone really wants and craves 
the spotlight and yeah. the attention and the ability to shape and influence from a stage, like maybe that's a sign that actually they're not ready for it. Yeah. It's like an addict. Um, I feel like there should be some sort of clearing house, right? That goes through, you know, Chuck DeGroat does analyses of, for people. He has a special uh, tool that he uses, but I think it would be interesting to point out and say, Oh, there's something there that you have an addictive tendency Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. really feeds off of a stage Mm -hmm. and having somebody like say, I don't know if this is going to be good for you. You may be amazing at it. In fact, you probably are Mm -hmm. very Mm -hmm. gifted, right? It is, it is not good for your soul. Yes. And not only is it not good for the individual soul, but over time, it's actually not good for the Christian organization or the church or wherever it is. Like having a person who lacks health and groundedness and integrity in that way and who seems to have some kind of addiction to the spotlight is going to tarnish the organization, right, Mm -hmm. in some way. We'll be right back after a quick break. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about the Untangled Faith podcast Patreon community. This Patreon community is the primary way this podcast is funded. As a thank you for their support, my patrons receive access to bonus audio that doesn't get shared with the public. And this week, I have extra bonus audio with Caitlin. And the bonus audio that I've shared over the past year is also all there. In June, while I was taking some time off, I recorded some short episodes just for my patrons. I talked about why it's hard to see the truth, safe listeners, and lazy geniusing the season of your faith. You can access all of this by going to patreon.com slash untangled faith. That's patreon.com slash untangled faith. And now back to my conversation with Caitlin. And, you know, so many other people have pointed this out that we, we have been in a season in the American church of talking so much about calling and giftedness, especially around teaching and preaching and communication skills. But what if that, (laughs) I mean, I think it's just obviously not enough. It's obviously not the only requisite for stepping into a position of leadership, like bringing that alongside the absolute prerequisite of spiritual maturity self-reflection, a desire to be in proximity with people who can say hard but true things. I go to a church currently where the pastor is not like a particularly shiny or gifted. I mean, he's fine. Yeah. (laughs) But like, that's not the main event. And sometimes I'm really engaged and other times I'm not. But in some ways, that's actually refreshing to me. Like, because I don't sense that he is trying to woo or wow or entertain us. You know, he he is working with the tools that he has to try to faithfully preach the word. And sometimes it lands and sometimes it doesn't, but I never get the sense that it's about him in the spotlight. And that is very refreshing. I love that. I hope he doesn't say to this. he's fine. But that, I hope that's, he does. that's a great thing. Actually, I think that's a great thing to say. I think it is more healthy to walk away from a church service or experience with somebody that is like preaching the word and not remember them particularly being amazing mm-hmm. because that wasn't the point of it anyways. So I kind of think, you know, we, mm-hmm. we have this idea that's saying, oh, 
it's fine is sort of a, a slam, but it actually is really healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's there to help you see Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, help you see something in the word, or she's there to help you see that. And I am starting to feel like red flags when somebody talks to me about their faith community and they're like, oh my goodness, you've mm-hmm. got to visit this place. My pastor is so funny. They're oh. so amazing. <laughs> and I was like, no, thanks. Mm. <laughs> no, I, I feel like, I mean, that's not, it's okay if they're funny. It's okay if they're well, great sure, communicator. Sure. Yeah. Have you, I mean, I feel like I have a, I have a, the same, I have a similar spidey sense about that. <laughs> yes. But articulate like what, what do you think, what do you think that red flag is for you? Uh, well, I think it's the experience that I've had too. Like we had a pastor that was really funny but I always felt a little uncomfortable and we found out he was plagiarizing every word of his sermons. They were, they were someone else's and he was telling someone else's So it wasn't even his own jokes. No, it was Mark Driscoll's. He was preaching Mark Driscoll's sermons and telling Mark Driscoll's personal stories as his own. That is so weird. Why not choose someone no one had heard of? Right. <laughs> At the very least, choose an obscure person who no one could trace this back to. Yeah, it was crazy. Bob Smetana actually wrote about this uh, pastor like a year or so ago because it was such a crazy thing because he lost his job because, you know, people found out that's what he was doing. He went to found out his way to a new church and he was doing mm. the same thing. You know, even his uh. mannerisms were the same. Oh, that's As so far, you know, like it, there's like this screenshot that Bob shared in his article of the of Mark, a Mark screenshot next to this pastor, and they were doing the same, the same thing. So I'm like, ironically, between the time that I recorded this interview and when it's going live, I discovered that this pastor I was referring to had been fired again. Reportedly, there were more instances of plagiarism, as well as creating false email accounts to complain about specific staff members, and falsifying expense reports. If you want to hear more of our story with this pastor, you can find it in episodes one and two. If it's sort of a pastor-centered thing, mm-hmm. I feel nervous about it. I just... Yes. And having my husband work at a Christian organization <clears throat> with a high-profile leader that mm-hmm. people think are, is funny and engaging, and the thing, I just... Mm-hmm. And then knowing that it wasn't really what we had hoped it would be. I... I sort of mm-hmm. have an allergy to that now. I'll just, and I have this sort of thing where I see a certain uh, way of talking about things like online from leaders. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I have got a bad feeling. I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> I mm-hmm. hope I'm wrong. I mm-hmm. hope somebody comes around them and helps them mature in their leadership. But, mm-hmm. you know, I just have that. I don't know if you've experienced that as well. Yeah, I think it's just, Again, being a cynical journalist <laughs> and probably related to my Enneagram number since everything is um, something about the feeling that someone is trying to wow me yeah. and impress me. And it's not really about the content of what they're saying, but it's about their own image and personality that they're really trying to present as the thing that yeah. will attract people. And then, of course, what happens is that they do attract people, you know, like people flock to hear the person speak or teach Mm -hmm. or whatever. And the church, the other leaders, the people responsible for keeping the organization going start to think, well, like we can't 
hold this person accountable. We can't give them a check on this because now their charisma and their personality is so central to our growth. Yeah. It's paying the and bills. We, and we, and we don't want to stop growing. We got to, we got to keep growing, you know, like obviously this is successful. Obviously God is blessing this. So why would we put a stop to this kind of behavior? Because it would hurt people. It really, it, I mean, and you think about growth in that way, you think, you know, some people just think about like the top level, uh, really visible leaders of an organization, but there's a lot of other people that are just faithfully answering the phones and mm-hmm. putting together, you know, VBS programs that if, mm. if you hold the top leadership accountable, it ends up hurting their income too. And so mm. it's just, it's hard. It really mm-hmm. is hard, but I think it, it, it begs that question. Like, are we trusting God to provide for our needs? Do we mm. actually need to give a pass to unhealthy leaders so that people are provided for or people come to know the Lord? And and I I think mm. I believe in a God that's bigger than that. I don't think he needs to say, hey, if I hold Mark Driscoll accountable, maybe people won't come to know me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just don't. Yeah, I think what you're highlighting is when a when a specific celebrity figure is over time seen to be ordained or or anointed and like their position is really wrapped up with God's providence and God's plan. It's just, it's like the ego of leaders projected onto God. (laughs) Like, you know, it's good for all of us to remember God does not need us in the spotlight with a platform in order to do God's work in the world. He doesn't depend on us having people listening to us and looking at us in order to spread his kingdom far and wide. It's not just we might, you know, people might lose their jobs or like we might start to lose members or whatever. The cost as well is the cost of the church's public witness. Yeah. Because you know, of course, with the story of Mars Hill, but also so many other churches, when abusive behavior was allowed to go on unchecked, and then all of the truth came out, and people who were really hurt started speaking up, like, the church is made to look hypocritical. Yeah. We lose more than self-preservation. You're absolutely. When we call people out. It's also like, you know, people are reading about this in the Seattle newspaper. Well, what are her neighbors thinking about this church? Yeah. You know, or about the church. Yeah. And I think it goes back to like the, that narcissistic tendency that, that infiltrates our systems is that we tend to see us especially anointed, our organization as, as being, as being especially needed. And I think Mm -hmm. when we send that message that says, we can't say this because the reputation, you know, if, if our church looks bad, it mm-hmm. makes the gospel look bad. It makes Jesus look bad. We need to be quiet about this. But we're sending we're sending a message. I don't think we would think through the message we're sending to the people that have been hurt. Is mm. that your pain mm-hmm. uh, has to happen? Cannot be addressed mm-hmm. for the sake of the gospel. And that's a terrible message to send to people that are being, you know, sometimes sexually abused, sometimes just spiritual abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, isn't that just such a warning sign if people's pain or abuse is seen as just 
you know, the cost of doing the mission. Oh, like, man. Like, that is not pleasing to Jesus. I just want to say that on record. That is not okay. That is not blessed by God. That is not, like, if that is the mindset, you have really deep problems. And yeah, I would argue. you lost the plot at that point. <laughs> you've lost, yes, absolutely. Something's happened. Absolutely. Um, you, you did mention, uh, I think I... I noticed some things about your book that I, I think that are going to be hard for some people, but I think is really important. You have nuance <laughs> and a lot of people want to hear something is all good or all bad. And when it mm-hmm. comes to platform and being, you know, well-known, there is mm-hmm. no all good or all bad when it comes to that. Talk mm-hmm. to me about that, how you've worked through that. Yes. Um, well, I'm very glad to hear that it comes across that way because (laughs) I've had a couple readers say like, oh, wow, you really put this person on blast or people are going to be nervous about who you call out. And, you know, the point of the book is not to call out specific people. It's to diagnose and analyze. But yeah, when you're in the work of reporting on complicated people, as everybody is for this long, you just realize people are such mixed bags mm-hmm. and that's not to say that there are there aren't specific actions and behaviors that are just uniformly wrong like i have no problem saying that about specific behaviors or actions but um you know the human heart human desires human motives are muddled they're yeah. they're muddled in me and i think what came out in the Mars Hill podcast, one of the things that came out was actually there were a lot of people hurt in that system. Mark Driscoll should not be in church ministry. And also there would there are people who would say being part of this church saved my faith, yeah. brought me to Christ, blessed my family. These are the deepest relationships I've ever had. It's all it's so mixed. It's so complicated. That's what makes journalism so interesting is that you get to tease things out. I know that some people will want a takedown and I do have critical words for specific people and organizations, but I hope the spirit is if we're seeking the truth, it probably has to be more nuanced than all good or all bad. Yeah. And you can say that about like, you know, a bigger church has different uh, susceptibilities that maybe a smaller church doesn't. But I do like how you kind of draw that line between, you know, Mark Driscoll was very unhealthy, seems to still be unhealthy, should not still Mm -hmm. be pastoring, has not Mm -hmm. fully reckoned with that. But Mm -hmm. also to say, even, even with that, God, God did some things for people. I'm not Mm -hmm. going to give Mark the credit for that. Um, The church, (laughs) some people, you know, Um, despite the unhealthy things, God Mm -hmm. allowed some things to grow, to grow there. Some of my cynicism comes from my husband, you know, working for Dave Ramsey's organization and leaving. Yeah. There was a time where I think Twitter did a big purge of like fake followers and maybe like 2018-ish or something. And I remember going and looking like who recently has lost a lot of followers? Like, and it was like, I don't remember. It was sort of a big deal where people were like, oh my goodness, this person just lost, you like know, 10,000 10, or more. Right. I think that was a really interesting thing. The fact that people are buying followers is really 
it's really sad, especially in the world of Christian, Christian media. Like we were supposed to be, (laughs) it just seems like completely opposite of what we should be all about. Well, it's both the deceptive element of it. Cause of course, nobody who has done this wants you to know that they've bought fake followers. Yeah. But then it also, again, just goes, it speaks to a desire to amplify the appearance of your own importance because again, those, those numbers can get, you know, there's a sense that they can open doors to other things. Again, I just think any like gatekeepers, the people who are determining like, who do we ask to come and speak or who do we give book deals to need to become a little bit wiser and discerning about numbers can lie. You know, like a number Mm -hmm. is just one bit of data that for all we know could be false data. Let's at least like look into it, you know? Yeah. And and to talk about it, like if, if certain books are making a list like one time and nobody's heard of them Mm -hmm. and that just, and they aren't hitting it for very long. And Mm-hmm. I, I think the conversation at some point needs to be had, but it's hard to have because there's a lot of powerful people involved in these mm-hmm. money involved, power, relationships, mm-hmm. all those things are are really hard mm-hmm. to have this like, like, so like the conversation about plagiarism and mm-hmm. ghostwriting and how that plays into Christian publishing. I am really interested and what kind of conversations are happening with that? And will there be any changes coming forward? You know, we've heard some serious allegations about high profile plagiarism that's happened. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem like there's much uh, accountability. And I don't know if we're blaming legal or or how that all works. But yeah, what are your thoughts on, on mm. that sort of uh, integrity issue? When it- so... <clears throat> Do you want me to talk about ghostwriting or plagiarism or both? I know it's both. I mean, they're don't they're not the same thing. Uh, pick your poison. <laughs> so, my view, which I tease out in the book because there is a chapter on Christian book publishing, is um, I think that ghostwriting can be a legitimate form of communication. Yes, as long as so, I offer two kind of metrics for doing this with integrity. One is that the person is explicitly given credit where credit is due. I think we have to ask like, you know, a big mega pastor who says, well, I don't have time to write my own book. Okay, you need help or you're just not a good writer. So you hire a ghostwriter. Why not just give credit where credit is due and say like, I had help with this. It doesn't necessarily mean that the book is invaluable, but there's this, there is this desire to hide the fact that you've had help that I think yeah. is a problem. And then the other you know, metric is, is the ghostwriter being compensated to a degree that's commensurate with the value that they bring to the project? You know, it's not uncommon for celebrity pastors or writers to get very generous <laughs> book contracts yeah. and then look at what the ghostwriter is getting. It's like, I'm pretty sure that they brought more than you know, 5% of what you got in an advance to this book. Like mm-hmm. this book would not yeah. exist without them. Yeah. I think at the, at the end of the day though, with ghostwriting, the central thing is just be honest about it. Like, why are we trying to hide the fact that someone has paid a ghostwriter? Yeah. Yeah. Plagiarism 
is obviously, <laughs> you know, yeah. under no circumstances is acceptable. I think what has often happened is that uh, when we think about some of these kind of high profile writers and pastors who have been accused of plagiarism, they actually are relying on like a team of people to write the book, like a research yeah. team. And again, this is a this is a form of deception because nobody th- nobody knows who's reading your books that in fact you didn't sit down and write these ideas. You had like a team kind of come up with or or at least compile your ideas. But you can imagine that if you have like five cooks in the kitchen, something's going to get dropped. Whereas right. if you only so that's not an excuse. It's just to say that I think the problem of plagiarism is connected to an over-reliance on teams to write books. In terms of publishers, like, I mean, I don't know any publisher who wants to be accused of plagiarism. It's obviously a huge credibility issue. But I wonder if um, in some ways publishers are afraid to kind of speak up to the person and say, like, actually, this is a kind of intellectual theft, which is what plagiarism is. That is unacceptable and we can't work with you again. But like, oh man, do we really, (laughs) can we really afford to not work with the famous writer because they actually bring in half of our sales? So I, I know, again, that sounds cynical. And I, I wonder in Christian publishing too, if it's, you know, a, a lot of leaders inside the industry take the approach of like, it probably wasn't intentional. It was probably, it was a mistake it was not someone sitting down and saying, I'm going to take someone else's words and thoughts and treat them as my own. And so there's this grace extended. But I do think, you know, probably what's also at play is like, we can't afford not to publish them again. So we're going to let this slide. Again, yeah, that that message that's sent to the person whose words were stolen is, you know, they're expendable. Mm-hmm. Uh, they They aren't as important the high mm-hmm. profile person. That's so frustrating. Mm-hmm. I think one of the hard things too to see is in cases like this is that you just wonder like who is holding people accountable? Like they're if if they bring in too much money for a publishing house, for a publishing house to be willing to hold them accountable. And we don't really see their other ho- high profile friends, mm-hmm. you know, uh, speaking up or anything. Like that that's a hard question too. Like when you're mm-hmm. when you have a relationship with somebody and you're uh, in the spotlight, you have a platform and, and they have a platform. Like, what is your responsibility in mm-hmm. how you interact with them and platform them? And I think that was something interesting that sort of came up with John Christ recently, right? Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the questions of, oh, he's back, mm-hmm. and is this good? And like, what? what is the responsibility of people that are platforming him Mm -hmm. to understand like that, you know, Mm -hmm. just last month, right. June when his Netflix thing came out and, and Annie, Annie F downs had posted something that was really interesting to watch play out. And I Mm -hmm. I know you saw that as well. Like what, what is your thoughts on that? Yeah. So it's tricky. It's a hard question. (laughs) It is. And I'm trying to give it the, nuance that it deserves. So just taking the example of Annie and, and John, and, you know, I appreciated that she eventually took down the original post with him and posted a a video where, where she apologized and 
kind of committed to learning and doing the work. Um, I have no problem with the idea that like Annie and John are friends yeah. and like IRL, like, you know, yeah. it's not, it's not like if you have been credibly accused of really bad behavior, you should never have friends anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm fine with the idea that they are friends and that she cares about him and maybe does know him behind closed doors in a way that's healthy. Um, I think once you put that in the public's eye with what read to me as like a kind of imprimatur, like I'm vouching for this person as they're coming back into the spotlight. Yeah. Support this person. Right. Like I I think um, if you are really this person's friend asking hard questions about, okay, but have you actually made things right with the women that you hurt? You know, have you offered a real apology? Have you done the work? Is it maybe too soon to come back? <laughs> like, yeah, into the spotlight. Like, the original post read a little bit to me like, we're not just friends, but like, I am helping, I'm opening a door mm. for you with my social power to be welcomed and embraced and accepted. And, and hopefully, the friendship would go deeper to say, actually, because I care about you and I care about your integrity and doing right by other people. I'm not going to open this door for you until you have made things right with the women that you hurt until, and until we know that. And that's where I think, you know, Christians talk about like Matthew 18 and going behind, you know, like go to the person one-on-one, but when you have a platform Mm -hmm. and you've offered public speech and public communication, I do think it's appropriate for readers to respond publicly. Like if you have a problem with what Annie initially posted, you're not going to be able to go to her one-on-one, so to speak. And there's something about being in the public square that in my view warrants and legitimizes a public response. Now there's good, there's healthy and unhealthy ways to respond publicly. Like offering legitimate concern critique is different from just like putting someone on blast and whatever, like calling them, calling them trash or something. Yeah. And there is a difference. Like everybody needs a friend. And I think you're right. Is that line that says between, you know, this is a friend and you should support them like I support them or I am promoting them to you is it's really hard. Um, mm-hmm. I want to wrap up this with asking you a question because sometimes we, we want to hold celebrities accountable or the people that have these platforms and, but there is a role to be played on the side of the person that's spending their money, buying the books, mm-hmm. um, the consumer side so I would love to hear you talk as we like as we wrap up. Like, what are some things that we can do as people that are consumers? And I know that's sort of a cynical word for it, but like the audience, mm-hmm. the people that are part of the platform, what can we do to help promote and in- encourage healthy mm-hmm. personas, uh, healthy Christian uh, leaders, authors, speakers? Mm-hmm. Hmm. This goes back to something that we already talked about, but I think there is a way to appreciate and value someone's work without putting them 
on a pedestal in your mind or your heart. Mm. So really keeping the focus on the value of their work and their contributions to the world over kind of a starry eyed adoration of somebody, you know, Um, because that adoration can become a kind of unquestioning acceptance of everything the person says and does. And that can obviously, you know, on like on a spiritual level, it might just be like idolatry, which is always going to be a problem, but it also can um, allow someone to get away with things that are really harmful or unhelpful. Like if they start to believe what their adoring fans tell them about themselves. So just kind of checking that in our hearts and imaginations and really focusing on the value of someone's work rather than a kind of attachment to them as a persona or Mm -hmm. as a, as a figure that we want to be like, or we idolize in some way. That's good. Yeah. See them as a real person and not just as somebody we consume. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's what I want to say. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me what is amazing and awesome about the work you do. Writing books, Mm. writing articles, podcasting. What are you loving? What's what's energizing you lately? Mm. So I, you know, I have this book coming out. I help to host a podcast, but my day-to-day work is looking at book proposals, meeting with the team at Brazos Press, and working with authors to hopefully publish books that help edify the church. And that is, it's the most kind of non-public facing work of mine, but it's also the most rewarding just in terms of creating, helping to create the kind of books that I would want to read on my own, even if I didn't have to. (laughs) Like these are the kinds of books that I really believe can help readers engage complex contemporary issues with depth of faith and nuance and intellectual heft. Um, So yeah, we have some really exciting books coming out. Of course, it's really exciting to also be a part of a team when you see a book really work and take off. Um, I helped to acquire Beth Allison Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. It's like, oh, I guess we could maybe take a chance on this. And then of course it, you know, did very well and has been read widely and it's just really fun when that happens. And like, you can't always predict when it does, but I love that story too, because this was about her work, her, like Mm. she did the work on this. It wasn't about being a famous person. It was about Mm -hmm. her being really spending a lot of time and research and creating a really amazing, amazing book. So I didn't know you were a part of that personally. That is really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We, we love Beth and we have her contracted for two more books. Um, so yeah, very excited to work with her. Very cool. Well, I appreciate your time. How can we support you? Where can we find you? You can read things that I have written, um, at caitlinbeatty.com. There is a link to various, uh, booksellers at the website for purchasing celebrity for, for Jesus. If you're interested in the book, I am on Twitter. I feel like I have to apologize in advance for being snarky at times, but <laughs> that is my, you already know that I'm cynical, so that might come through. Um, but yeah, CaitlinBadies.com is the best place to find me. 
Well, I appreciate your time so much. And I could not tell at all that you're jet lagged. You, you, oh, good. <laughs> you seem to be speaking quite clearly. So. Oh, good. Good. I'm excited for you. Excited for your book. I, Thanks, I hope Amy. a lot of people pick it up. And thank, thank you. you for your work. Thank you for, well, for likewise. talking about the hard things. I appreciate it so much. Yeah. Thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast. I'd love to keep the conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook and Faith Untangled on Twitter. For more information about supporting the show, check out patreon.com slash untangledfaith. You can find the show notes at untangledfaithpodcast.com. The Untangled Faith Podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. A special thanks to my Patreon supporters. This podcast is made possible by support from patrons and the Fritz family budget. Special thanks to producer Michelle Pionic. I love that I get to do this. Introducing you to people and resources is one of my favorite things to do. Thanks so much for showing up and I'll see you next week.